Welcome to From Uniforms to Unicorns. This podcast is all about our experience as female corrections officers, our challenges, our triumphs, and our transitions out of the career. Lauren and I have always had a significant bond friends, moms, and business owners that happen to be in prison. Life attempted to separate us, but we always found a way back to each other through huge life milestones, tragedy, and random text messages saying, I thought of you today. We know there's huge curiosity surrounding these topics, and we aren't the only ones that struggle. There are also incredible stories just waiting to be shared, and we want this to be a safe place for us and you to talk about the often unspoken world of corrections. Grab a coffee, head out on a walk, or just take a break. Let me warn you, we have no idea what we're doing. From uniforms to uniforms. From Uniforms to Unicorns is sponsored by Brand 47 Coffee, which was founded by Holly and Alex, both first responders looking to create a sustainable business to pass on to their two sons with Down syndrome, Jax and Nico. Thinking about the future has always been in the forefront of their heads for their boys, creating meaningful employment and independence as adults. The only way to do that was to create it. Brand 47 Coffee Co. provides the most unique and fun-flavored coffee. Seriously, it is so good. Our Mine and Sharon's favorite is the Coco Loco. It's coconut-infused. It is to die for. All of their coffee is small-batched and roasted to order. They are incredible people doing incredible things. Their vision is to keep the world caffeinated, to stay special, and be extra. You can find them at brand47coffee.com. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Are we freezing or are we okay? (laughs) I think we're okay. We're good. And we're ready to um, start with a a new guest today. Um, Neil McLean is joining us. Uh, We actually have never met him and we can't even see him because we can't see him on the Zoom, but that's okay. We're very excited to have him uh, join us today. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sharon. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Yeah. We're pretty excited. Yeah. You've done some pretty massive things in your life. So we want you to tell us a little bit. Uh, you're also a correction, former corrections officer, but you did a ton more time than Sharon and I did. Maybe Sharon and I joined together, but um, you've, yeah. written, you've written a book um, and you, you know, you started telling us some stories. So I'm like, let's just dive into this. Tell us about you. Tell us about you, Neil. Well, let's see. I was, uh, I, I joined uh, the broadcasting industry back in uh, the 70s and starved to death doing that before I finally wised up and joined corrections. Um, At the tail end of my broadcasting career, I joined the RCMP as an auxiliary constable and uh, did that, which automatically qualified me to be a correctional officer. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. I, uh, I never looked back after that, except I questioned myself every every day because i thought i was this qualified police officer and i had no clue what i was getting into and it was like a thousand times more intense than anything i saw on the streets so it was uh, it had some challenges it had some uh, old boy club uh, dynamics in there as well uh so it wasn't a fun introduction into corrections uh what year I, would that have been neil what's that what year 
Uh, that was 1988 when I joined. Oh, awesome. Okay, cool. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a different time back then. And I, I don't think I really appreciated my job at the time. I didn't keep notes and I was uh, very uh, unbendable when it came to, uh, I was a tough guy. At least I thought I was in my mind. And I didn't okay. like inmates very much. And so it was a, kind of a rude introduction to uh, the dynamics of a, a correctional career. I mellowed out over the years and uh, went from there. And what, 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 uh, what jail did you start at? I started at Kent, which is a maximum Kent. security prison in Agassiz. Uh, I did 19 and a half years there. Uh, I was a union troublemaker and they kicked mm -hmm. me out and sent me to Matsqui for four months and it got worse. Uh, brought me back to Kent, uh, went over to Mountain, and became a correctional manager, and then went down to Mission, and then came back to uh, Mountain, and then retired. Wow! 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 What was your favorite? So, Where was your favorite? Um, from experience, it would be Kent because I saw anything and everything. It really challenged my insecurities. Uh, I thought I was a pretty macho guy, but uh, I wasn't. And uh, so it challenged me every day. Uh, as you both know, being screamed at and threatened, um, it really brings out your confidence or it destroys you. Um, I've been in three riots, held hostage, been stabbed with a hypodermic needle, uh, wow. so all kinds of fun stuff. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. That's crazy. Well, I, I, said to, I said to the inmate, I said, give me that. So he did. He stabbed me with it. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, wow. I to see. Wow. So I wrote my first book. Yeah. Tell us about book. that. Now I'm on my third. Okay. So wow. what's the first book? What's the premise of the first book? Uh, oh, you can't see, so it doesn't we really matter. Uh, the premise of the first book was uh, was sort of an introduction into the, it was a bunch of short stories, and it was sort of a memoir, sort of a, a creative writing, um, nonfiction, mm -hmm. but uh, I really enjoyed the, the, you know, starting from the beginning and going through and telling some of my stories that just were unbelievable, the murders, the suicides. My first day on the job at Kent was a, was a murder and I almost wow. threw it. Um, and I just said, what have I got myself into? Um, and then I had my first riot after 25 days and uh, I was sort of stuck in the unit, couldn't get out and they were threatening to kill me and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was my first one. And I, I think it did reasonably well. I was very happy with it. Um, you have, have to ask me about the American Express credit card story. That is my favorite story of all oh, time. Tell us about the American Please tell us. <laughs> <Sorry. Yeah. laughs> for, for some reason, management thought it was a good idea to give us American Express credit cards so that if we went out on an escort, we could charge the hotel room or gas or whatever it may be onto the credit cards. Well, we had a couple of very resourceful correctional officers that were married to each other, and they decided to take the cash advance from each credit card Oh, oh. His breast implants. <laughs> so we just sat there and went, oh my goodness. Sort of like giving a drunk monkey a gun. Uh, oh. We, my, we barely know. even got the keys to the van. Yeah, we barely. We didn't get a credit card. <laughs> there, was no, there was no way. It's like, we're almost out of gas. Can we get a credit card? They're like, the maintenance guy will come and fill it up before you guys leave. <laughs> So, oh. and what's the, what's the title of your, of the first book you wrote? 
uh, is Serving Life 25, yes. One Guard Story. And uh, I used the term guard uh, because it was back in the day when we were guards. And mm -hmm. uh, But I certainly recognize the new new way we're going, and, and I make reference to us as correctional officers. But once in a while, I'll, I'll throw in the guard term. Mm -hmm. it's, I don't find it. I don't know. I don't find it to be anything like mm, negative no yeah. i don't find it to be negative mm -hmm. at all i would say like when i say i'm a corrections officer they're like well what's that and i then i say prison guard they're like what <laughs> right like <laughs> people mo I, like like that girl we had on the one time whose mom thought she was a collections officer remember that yeah that, that was, was funny it was, but i think that's what people think like corrections is not something in people's regular vocabulary right mm -hmm. so then they're like well, what does that mean? Because first of all, I'm not very big. Um, I was quite young. And then people are like, there, it didn't match. So when I say I'm a yeah. corrections officer, they're like, like, what do you mean? And I'd have to say prison guard because that's <laughs> the terminology they understood. Right. So yeah, I, I never, people, I used to tell people I was somebody's host, somebody's girlfriend in a hostage taking. And they go, oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> kind of wild. <laughs> Oh man, we to we totally would always just say like we're we're at all babysitters for yeah. the federal yeah. government, yeah. right? Like that's pretty much your job. And after I had kids, I was like, I'm not going there and babysitting adults all day and then coming home and dealing with my children. Like there's no freaking way. So yeah. I told exactly. one inmate to go to his room one time. I screamed at him and I thought after I said it, I went, Oh my goodness gracious, that's not the thing you say in prison. And he stormed <laughs> out of the room and then he got halfway up there and he realized I just treated him like a child. <laughs> well. So yeah, you have to be very careful. Yeah, you do. say no without getting killed. That's right. That's right. You have to. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right. Just be yep. safe. My be second safe. book was uh, is titled uh, "Beyond the Gates of Hell: The Untold Stories," and that's more of a um, an inmate driven. Thing. all the inmates I've dealt with, like Terry Driver, the Abbotsford killer, and so on and so on and oh, so wow. on. So I did my basic introduction to my purpose in the book, and then I launched into the different stories of the inmates I, I worked with. Uh, the third book, um, which is Prison, Prison Tales from the West Coast, is more of a compilation of history stories based on, you know, from the BC pen. Everything's in this book is about prisons in British Columbia, because that's my area of, of comfort. Um, so I talk about the pen and Matsqui and, and all the different prisons and then some of the inmates and some of the untold stories. And so just a good cool. mixture. That's of very, very cool. And yeah. I mean, I'm entrenched in this, like, I'm, I still love everything like crime and I watch all the yeah. Netflix series and all of that. Right. So, um, yeah, I think, but I know lots of people are, lots of people are interested in those. Like every time I sit down with someone, they're like, tell me a story. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I should, I'll just say you can buy this book and there you go. <laughs> yeah. Those are the stories. We'll let Neil right? tell you the stories. Neil's welcome <laughs> to tell you the stories. Well, uh, when I started this when I was doing the marketing part, I took the newspaper out with all the, the TV shows and I started to highlight all the true crime, all the news, all the 60 minutes and market play, all the crime beat stories. By the time I was finished, my newspaper page was covered in yellow. And that was the aha moment for me when I realized people love true crime. Mm -hmm. They really and do. 
yeah, it's something sick in us that <laughs> God bless everybody. Yeah. That... <laughs> it's so it's true though. It's very like I I know for us and in, in the women's prison we always got when orange is the new black was the thing that people would always is it like this is it like that and we're like it's it is but it's dirtier like it's not <laughs> like prison isn't sexy like how they try and make it right on right. these shows or like it's like this but it's dirtier yeah so yeah that's a very good description. If, if I know <laughs> use that, I think that's really good. Yeah, please. So one of the neat things and, I did in and my so career, what led you to start sorry, what led you to start writing books? Well, that's the million dollar question. Um I was noticing that I was becoming a little bit sensitive to things, noise. Uh, people were annoying me. I was getting into verbal confrontations um, at work that were kind of risky, you know, as far as uh, yelling at inmates. And um, so I decided, my wife decided rather, that I should go get some help. And uh, Isn't that always I, the way? Yeah, <laughs> I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD uh, a couple of years before I retired and I started to uh, go to sessions and the uh, psychologist suggested that I write some notes down, just, you know, some of the, the more horrendous and the, there were so many notes it became a manuscript and became a book. And I thought, Hey, it was rather uh, uh, healing for me. And uh, I just sort of continued. I retired in 2014 and uh, I just love writing and, uh, when I started, I don't think I could spell right, but uh, I learned. Uh, I are guard, as they say. Um, I took lots of classes and joined groups and uh, started putting my stories together and talking with people. I had lunch with a couple of contract killers, and and uh, which was kind of nervousness, uh, uh, nerving. But uh, so uh, research is a lot of fun. Yeah. I, you know, that's the part I love. I love the research part, which, um, I do a lot with the nonprofit that I founded, but, um, Sharon's a writer. She, Sharon yeah. loves to write. Sharon finds it like super healing to, um, to get those things out on paper. And I, I have, um, but I, I, I don't, yeah, they're for sure not manuscript materials. <laughs> there, there are some of those things that I'm just like, I'm not ready to put out there yet. Maybe one day, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's super cool. And there is so much healing in putting it down on paper. And then, um, I've done some work around this, so I, I know, but like changing the narrative around it, right. Yeah. Like, what's the, like you walk away with a story and it, sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not even true. Right. It's the, it's how you perceived it, but then you go walk away. And a few years later, it's like, Oh wow. And you keep, you keep telling yourself that story, but you have, you have the ability to change it. Mm -hmm. And that's my favorite thing about writing. Cause I've gone back and read some of these things and I'm like, wow, Lauren, you were in such a different space because totally. how I would look at that now is very different based on, you know, some of the things that I've done. So mm -hmm. what, what was that like for you? Do you go back and read and think, wow. Well, one of the things I, I've, I've noticed, if, if you'll allow me to stroke my ego a little bit here, my first Please. book was, was a basic book. It sold very well. I was very excited about it. The second book was a little better. The third manuscript, 
I put a lot of effort into words, become a wordsmith and things like going for a walk turns into a villainous journey. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I've become a lot more descriptive Cool. Uh, and uh, it's become a real fun challenge to take a sentence that's kind of boring and uh, turn it into something that's really interesting, like hooking the person with the blood. And yeah. uh, I think I'm going to open my book with prison is dirty. <laughs> <laughs> that'll catch people that'll okay, catch what people. is that supposed yes. to mean <laughs> okay so our listeners always love to hear uh about incidents they always want to hear stories and you kind of started telling us a story before we started recording and i want to hear that story so i know our listeners do so um you were telling us a story about the only or the first was it the only or the first successful helicopter escape the first helicopter escape happened in June 18th, 1990. Okay. And uh, we made it to the front page of the National Enquirer, which was quite exciting. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sadly, one of our officers was shot in the knee oh, no. and oh, no. uh, a super good friend. And he uh, hobbled through the rest of his career in a lot of pain, uh, but he managed mm -hmm. to retire a couple years back. And, uh, but yeah, it was two, uh, two bad guys. Uh, uh, Robert Ford and uh, David Thomas. Uh, David uh, Thomas was a punk and uh, uh, Robert Ford was a, a killer and a wannabe mobster. And uh, uh, it was kind of a, a cluster blank, if you will. Um, they went to the wrong part. You of can the say the F word on here. We, we, we click the explicit. <laughs> Keep going. Sorry. I'm not allowed to swear. So. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. It was... Um, and to, I don't mean to take away from the seriousness of it, but it was really interesting learning of all the details and putting it all together because it's one thing to say a guy broke out of prison, but it's another thing to say machine gun bullets and and uh, our mobiles flew into the scene. We had two officers. Uh, we were all brand new at the time. Um, and uh, we had two officers that had six months on the job fly into a hail of bullets, which boggles my mind that they would be that brave to do that. So it was um, a very, very interesting story. The funny part of it was they commandeered the helicopter and the pilot, took them to uh, about five kilometers away from the prison uh, in where I live on Harrison Hot Springs. There's a, it's a big lake. So they, they landed on the shores and they had a canoe waiting for them and they canoed out to Echo Island. Wow. And they were supposed to be waiting for a, a float plane to come and take them away. And uh, it never showed up. And the reason they were caught, because it was a summertime and there's a fire ban and they were lighting a fire at night because they were cold. And then, of course, that kind of set off alarm bells and they were caught. So um, amazing story. Um, yeah. Yes. And short lived. Like, how did it cost to get a helicopter to break you out of prison to be gone for like a not even a day? That's that sucks. Right? Well, one of the choices I had for a T-shirt was the the uh, Thomas Ford Travel Agency ask us about our three day excursions to Echo Island. Um, that's wicked. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's wow. awesome. I mean, uh, Sharon and I were uh, were a part of an escape. Uh, one time it wasn't anything crazy like that, but I do like that night. I was one of the first responding officers, uh, another officer, uh, the alarm didn't go off on, on the fence 
And I mean, those alarms went off like every 15 minutes. So the fact that it, when it, when it was like snowing, the alarm was going off. So I was like, and the person in the, in the control post would never like disarm an alarm. She was like on it. Mm-hmm. And this inmate climbed, she climbed over the max unit fence and then got over the, the big fence and it didn't alarm. She actually thought it was like a garbage bag that was in the dark. She said it looked kind of like a garbage bag had hit the wind. And then when it came back around, she was like, Oh no, that person's fucking climbing the fence. The fence. So we went out there and of course there's razor wire and then it's all cut up because she didn't make it over. And, uh, I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I was going to party at the rum jungle Lauren, because from where we are, we're in the city of Edmonton. You could see the, like these lights going across from this bar at the West Edmonton. <laughs> She was like, that's where she was going. She was going for a good time. Oh man. It was quite the evening. It was, uh, oh man, such a good time. So, so. funny. So we yeah. had our um, infamous box escape. Uh, one inmate who was going out on parole, uh, allowed his buddy to be packed in his, uh, personal belongings in a box. He stayed in the box overnight and then, packed him into the, uh, the taxi and off he went. And, uh, wow. that was a bit embarrassing. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's like, obviously the, you didn't have an A and D person. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it was the A and D person that, uh, packed them out. It was, as I say, it was kind of embarrassing. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, but like, oh, that's these, hilarious. these people are resourceful. If I was ever to like scheme or do something, the first person I would call is an inmate and be like, yeah. hey, exactly. how would you do this? Their brains work so so differently. They're so resourceful. Um, even, I even think about that now. I'm like, what would an inmate do? Not that it's like conniving or anything like that, but I always think I will always want to think outside the box. I always want to try new things. I always want to learn new things. And sometimes I'll think like, where would an inmate hide this? Oh, in the coffee grounds in the, <laughs> in the wherever. <laughs> That's right. You're right. Because I remember taking an inmate out, she was young and she was telling me how quickly she could um, create a credit card and a new identity. And it was all like mathematical. And I said to her, uh, you're brilliant. Why don't you use your brain for good? And she said, what am I going to do? Get a job paying, you know, 10 bucks an hour flipping <laughs> burgers. And I'm like, oh, okay, but you're also fair. in prison. So yeah. <laughs> That's fair because even I think it's changed a little bit now. And, uh, but I remember like schooling was massive in the, in the early 2000s, right? Like if you didn't have schooling, you didn't have anything. Now you don't need that, right? Like you can take a course on the internet and say, I'm this or this, or, you know, and you can have some sort of skill. Um, and maybe it's because I do have the background that I have. I don't feel like I don't have a degree. I'm four courses short of a degree, everybody, just so you know, (laughs) Uh, because I decided to be a, a you know, a corrections officer instead of finishing that. Um, but I think there's more, um, emphasis put on skill now than, you know, um, degrees behind your name. Am I wrong? No, I think you're, you're correct. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was a a lot of emphasis put on degrees. I got in with a grade 12 education and I didn't even want the job. I was looking to go to Canada (laughs) border services and they kept taking my application from Canada border services and transferring it over to corrections. And I got quite annoyed. Um, After the third time, when I told the recruiter to go to heck, can I say hell? You can say Uh, hell. 
she's now retired and she laughs. She says, I'm the only recruit that's ever told her to go to hell and still get a job. <laughs> it was very difficult back in the day to, to maintain uh, staffing levels. The, the money wasn't as good. I think I started at $23,000 a year and uh, I, th I think I finally left at 96,000 and now managers are making 120,000. So, I mean, it's changed a lot. A lot yeah. of young kids have degrees to open doors and, and things, but uh, it is what it is. It changes and goes back to the original. And, mm -hmm. and I, don't, I didn't have to have a degree. We just had to pass all those tests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the big, back then and we had to run the physical which they took away now no i didn't and, run it oh you didn't okay mm -hmm. back in 2002 or one um yeah and now though if you wanted to move forward like get a maybe um parole or whatever you need a degree for that yeah. now yeah yeah but all your years of experience don't count i guess towards yeah. it I've always had a bit of an issue with, uh, and I respect people with degrees, but I often question, why do you need somebody with a degree? Well, they have a different level of, of uh, job performance. They do a lot of writing, and, and I think that that probably comes in handy. But I also felt they shouldn't uh, discount people that don't have degrees that maybe have a grade 12, but with 20 years experience. But mm -hmm. it is what it is, and... Mm -hmm. We don't make the rules. No, but I mean, for me, I do have a degree, but I got my degree. I was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So my experience, I have way more experience. So it's just yeah. one of those things, right? Like, what do you know, Lauren, mm -hmm. at 22 years old? Nothing, Sharon. <laughs> I, I actually, so I, uh, this, the nonprofit that I'm part of, I have, I have students. Um, and some of these people that apply for $15, uh, an hour marketing jobs have master's degrees. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I'm like, what? For mm -hmm. fit? Like, I mean, it's probably a side gig for them. And what, you know, when I put out that I need someone to do something for 20 hours, they're probably like, I could do that in five and charge her for 20 yeah. hours. Right. But at the same time, I just look at, and I'm like, wow, there's so, there's so much education out there. And yet I don't think it's as prevalent as it was back then. And I don't think those people are getting hired over the people with experience, which that's exciting. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's crappy when you spend that kind of money, especially when university is so expensive. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I was uh, born and raised in West Vancouver, which back in the day was a bit of an affluent community. And I had, it was a white community and it wasn't until I joined corrections that I got to work with a whole diverse group of people. And it's it was an unbelievable experience. I sat and I listened and, and I just went, wow. So it was really an eye-opener for me um, at the different people and they're different, they brought their experiences to them. And you know, mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed that aspect of working with so many different kinds of people and and uh I love I love the stories. I especially loved like there were so many people that, and, and there's a fine line. And I, I, I say this for myself and you can totally disagree, but there's a fine line between a corrections officer and an inmate in some aspects, um, only because they would tell me a story. And I was like, Oh, like, not that I did anything really stupid, but I wasn't the greatest teenager in the entire world. Or I, you know, I made bad decisions, but like we all do, but I always think like, 
that could have been any of us. Like we had that mm-hmm. one lady who owned an art gallery. Do you remember her? She had her kids. She was about 55 years old, owned an art gallery. Her husband, um, uh, cheated on her. So she started dating and she ended up getting involved with this guy who convinced her to like do all the stuff, like sell all the stuff at the art gallery and then started threatening her kids. And it was like, this woman has lived her whole life up until she's 50 years old as a pro social Mm -hmm. law abiding contributing member of society. And here she is in prison. And I think she got like seven years. I mean, manslaughter doesn't even get fucking seven years. And here (laughs) this lady is, she like pawned a bunch of art gallery shit, but it was, it was involved in gang activity, which she didn't know at the time she says, but I'm just like, what is happening here? So I Mm -hmm. always, I always find it interesting when I hear those stories, because I love, um, you know, one bad decision could really land you there. Right. Mm -hmm. One bad. The one question I could, sorry. Go. The one question that I have never been able to answer, and maybe you have more insight than I do, but I often questioned why there was 18,000 federal male prisoners and about 500 female. And I could never understand the dynamics between the two and and the violence that men perpetrate on society. Women have different crimes. Um, Mm -hmm. If they're in for murder, the chances are it could be against an abusive spouse. Mm -hmm. Whereas men have a tendency of just killing because it's, ah, it's Friday. Um, Yeah. Let's see what it feels like. Yeah. Right. No, I, I never could understand why, uh, and maybe this is the feminist side of me as I believe in equal rights, uh, but I never could understand why it was so out of balance. Like what happens when we were born, uh, we go to the blue blanket or the pink blanket, and then we are Mm -hmm. raised accordingly. And and I think there's a real disconnect there with our society and the macho that we have to portray. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's that, that I, I feel like, and I think about this all the time too, right? Because, um, and and because we're being challenged in it right now, like gender, sexuality, all those things. Um, but it, I always felt like, okay, even the women that came that were like, um, you know, killed her child or killed her partner, they still had this like nurturing aspect to them, which I was like, fuck you. You're no nurturing broad. You're like, this is, (laughs) this is a show, but you could always kind of see it. And it, um, it did, it did rear its head more than a couple of times. And I just thought there it is. Like you could see a, a glimmer of something that was nurturing. What happened at, uh, Edmonton institution in the last couple of years was made me heart sick. I just, the, mm. the cruel behavior that they perpetrated on a, f- a couple of female officers and the, the wholesale mm-hmm. harassment uh, way beyond just uh, a couple of comments. It was criminal. There was assaults. There was rape. And I thought when you made the comment about we're not that far separate, in this case, we were. And Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. I just can't get over that kind of behavior in our system. And we claim to be professionals and yet this That's is the kind of stuff we're doing. So I think Edmonton really hit home for what we do for a living. And you can blame it on, oh, well, we've seen a lot of stuff. But I was taught you don't do that kind of stuff. And I never needed a, a feel-good course 
to learn about that. I knew mm-hmm. that was wrong, but uh, it's uh, prevalent in our system as it is mm-hmm. with the policing and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's, they get so many young people that come in and just want to fit in. This is where they're going to belong. And mm-hmm. everybody has that need to belong. And they, they change their characteristics. They change who they are. They change what they believe. I think even despite what they know, because they're the minority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's and like, that, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything because I'll get my ass kicked by these guys. Right. That, that mob mentality really takes over. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, that when that all came, all that blew up. I think Lauren, we were leaving or we were gone, gone yeah. but it was uh, shocking. It was still shocking to hear it, even though we'd heard rumblings of it. Because sometimes at the women's prison, we would get officers who landed with us because there was such major so harassment over there. And mm-hmm. yeah, I would. So said would they, if there was if they harassed one over there, they'd send them to us. To us. <laughs> Right. And oh. yeah. And they were never um protected or helped or supported through that. They just said go work in the women's prison then, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that was an eye opener for the guys that came over that thought like I remember we had remember we had that uh manager that came thinking I'm gonna work my last year in the women's mm. prison. Oh my god, he had no idea. And I called up one day, I'd had like such a bad day. Uh, we had extra staff and I, I decided that I was going to go home. So I called up and I said, is it okay if I go home? Like, I'm, I'm not feeling good. And he was like, Oh, do you have your period? Everyone here seems to have their period today. I was like, <laughs> I actually don't think you can say that. To me. Exactly. <laughs> speaking <laughs> of, speaking of the feel good course, right? Like we had to take a women's centered course, which mm-hmm. I mean, we, I don't know. We should have known how to act, but in our prison, the philosophy was the women that were incarcerated, which I sometimes had a hard time with, right? They were victims first and we were trained to be women centered and to help empower them and all of these things. And I always thought, cause I worked in the men's prison for the last year of my career, but I always thought men need to be empowered as well that they don't need to use violence as their way to cope with things. Cause that's, it's all to me, I believe it's that taught behavior or stuff your emotions in. And when it erupts, it erupts. But women, to me, it was the same. I saw more violence in the women's prison than mm-hmm. I ever did in the, in the, in the first two months, I saw more violence yeah. in the women's prison. Right. Yeah. I don't think men uh, appreciated the role of female correctional officers. I mean, uh, without sounding condescending or anything, women had a different uh, game to bring to the table and they were a lot more about dynamic security and talking and being rational. I I don't know how many times uh, my big mouth got me in trouble only to be calmed down by a rational thinking female correctional officer. Um, So they definitely brought something to the table um, and, you know, people say, well, you know, a woman can't defend themselves. I know lots of male correctional officers that couldn't beat their way out of a paper bag. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? yeah. So I think that there's a lot of people need to pigeonhole people and they need to put people down and, and such. But uh, I think it's more about dynamic security. It's about talking your way out of a situation or or treating people and I cringe when I say like human beings because they are some of their behavior certainly doesn't 
to demonstrate to that. But uh, I think you just need to, for your own psyche, for your own well-being, you just have to leave your anger and hatred at the door, uh, which I didn't do in the beginning of my career. I was quite an angry. Uh, I hated inmates because that's what everybody, that was the message we were sending. We Absolutely. Were yeah. And don't show any sort of, or your con lover or your, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and Sharon and I, when we started, I, I don't know if you knew this, Neil, but we had like, we weren't even allowed to carry handcuffs. We had to run to the duty office and sign them out. Um, so that's all we had was our mouse because those handcuffs could be 15 minutes. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows when the handcuffs are coming, right? So <laughs> that was our only defense. So I, and, and I even know later, there were times when we could have handcuffed, there were times we could have, you know, um, done a straight arm bar takedown or whatever, but our mouths were the things that really, and building that rapport with the inmates leading up to incidents, they were always saying, you know, build some sort of rapport, build some sort of rapport, because when it comes down to it, you'll need that information to talk your way out of a really bad situation. And I would say like, I, that's, that's how we did most of our work is mm -hmm. th through talking and through building those relationships. Um, because at the end of the day, like I got locked on a side range with a hostage taker and nobody noticed for a couple minutes. And if I did not have the relationship I had with that inmate, and if I wasn't smart enough to shut the door and know like, okay, don't be a hostage. Um, yeah. it, it could have been super bad. Right. But I, mm -hmm. I engaged, we talked, I remembered that she'd mentioned something the day before and I used those things against to, to keep things going before someone realized that I was standing there. So, uh, yeah, in a, in a women's facility, it's much different than mm -hmm. in a male's because, and, and when we hire corrections officers, we don't even hire ones. We only hire twos. We only have yeah. dynamic secure. Well, we have control posts, but you're a two in the control post, but I, we only have two control posts. That's mm -hmm. it. Every, and in males, you have how many, like almost everybody's a one, right? I used yeah. to call, I think people called it verbal judo, but it, I called mm. it how to say no without getting killed. Um, <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> how to say no without getting your, without your, getting your throat slit. Perfect. <laughs> when broadcast is over, remind me to tell you a story that I cannot tell you on the air. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I can't wait. Go into it. And, and, and the sooner that we realize that we can get more, uh, get farther ahead with choosing our words properly, the, the sooner we'll, we'll uh, do a better job. Right now, I think we're just uh, churning them through a mill and putting them back on the street. I think drugs is a huge, huge thing in our society. It'll probably be the end of society as we know it. Uh, it's making COVID look uh, pretty tame. Mm -hmm. A number of people are dying in Vancouver every day. Uh, the paramedics are so stressed out because of the drugs and, you know, we're bringing in uh, just the other day, Kent, I think they caught $93,000 worth of drugs coming in and that's wow. not unusual. And I think, oh. how do they pay these drugs back? Uh, right. But they are so desperate for drugs. And, and uh, so I think that's the ruination of our, our society is, is drugs and, and, uh, yeah, I don't think we're very well prepared to deal with it. It's just too much. It's like constantly being bombarded with drones, with smuggling, with uh, staff being corrupted, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, hacking, and 
Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we had that in our institution too. I mean, probably not to the extent it is now. Cause yeah, right now is my husband's a police officer. Um, and he, that's, that's mental health and drugs. That's pretty much, that is that's the extent it, right? and, and mental health associated to drugs because most of them are trying to overdose because they don't have access to any sort of, you know, they call the mental health line and it's like, yeah, we will see you, you know, four Thursdays from now. Well, mm-hmm. we'll make it four Thursdays from now. Right. So, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff happening. And like you said, it's above and beyond the COVID stuff, right? These people are financially struggling, mentally struggling. Um, it's, it's pretty crappy and our prisons are not, are not equipped to handle, you know, all of these, that's why all the laws have changed like drug trafficking laws and all of that. It's like, there's no place to put these people. So you can traffic a little bit, just not a lot. (laughs) My goodness, you called them people. If I had been (laughs) made as a person, or if I called them by their first name, I would be ridiculed. And yet I look at uh, uh, a guard killer. I think uh, Huey McDonald killed three guards. I think we all called him Huey. So there was no, or, or Tommy Ross, who was a serial rapist. We call him Tommy or, hey, Tommy boy, you know, and stuff like that. Um, just the hypocrisy of, of, you know, you can't treat a, a person. And eventually they're all going to get out of prison. Mm-hmm. So do you right. want somebody so angry that you've poked a stick out for 25 years? Or do you want to give them some appropriate courses and mm-hmm. help them get better? I don't know. It's... Mm-hmm. And, and I really struggled writing my third book because I didn't want to come off like a con lover. I wanted to point out some of the, the problems like the drugs and, and uh, uh, even the private family visits. Uh, mm-hmm. It has a component that does rehabilitate people. Absolutely. And families connected, but you can't say that. So yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a hindsight thing too, though. I feel like as I've gone through my own personal journey with like occupational stress, PTSD, all of those sorts of things, I, I see the humanity in that. And I look back and think, especially with like trauma informed anything, right. It's like, and I see the timer, Sharon. Thank you. Just, show, um, just showing you. <laughs> I uh, like all the sort of trauma informed stuff and all the stuff that's happened with residential schools. There's a lot of things that have come forward and it, it does give you a different outlook um, now than what you had in there. I mean, we didn't, we were trained in Aboriginal stuff. Like, you know, we did sweats and, you know, we had others, but I don't think I knew the extent of, of the trauma that, um, I, I, and I don't remember learning it in school, but everybody's like, well, you did. And I'm like, I don't remember learning. I don't remember at all. Um, and maybe I skipped a week of school or I don't even know, maybe, maybe (laughs) we did, but I don't personally remember it, but I think that information changes how we go forward. Right. And how we, I know, I know lots of police officers that have said it has changed the way I look at people on the street and think, wow, where have you come from? What has your family mm-hmm. been through? Instead of like, get your fucking ass to the homeless shelter or whatever, right? It's when you start learning these things and you start, um, the exposure that's come out of this is insane. And I think it's brilliant. Um, and I, I hope it changes a lot of things. Cause I know I talk to my kids differently about it now. And, um, but we didn't know 
we didn't know. But I think as we look back, I think I would approach things very differently based on the information I have now. Right. So hindsight's always 2020 and you don't want to say like, I'm a con lover, but you go back and you think, I don't think we knew their stories before they got arrested. Right. They don't give us that background information. Maybe so-and-so was, you know, molested as a child and, and that really fucks up somebody. Right. And, but we don't know those things. We know the crime. Right. And we read the correctional plan and we're like, what a sick fuck this is. And you know, you do all those sorts of things, but I, 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 I don't. And I, I, I never wanted to read anybody's file that wasn't on mine. I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't care. I don't care what you did because if I knew what you did, I'd probably hate you. So I just decided not to. Um, but yeah, I, you, well, even the difference between uh, the general population inmates, the stand up GP cons, it was okay to murder a woman, but it wasn't okay to murder a child. And they had this need to separate the two. And even today, oh, you're a, a GP inmate. Oh, you're a stand-up guy. Well, there's nothing stand-up about any of them. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I think it was a survival mechanism. Like uh, when I became a CO2, well, I'm a CO2. You're just a CO1 mm-hmm. and, uh, and on and on and on. So I think we have a lot of work to do in society in general. And uh, I think uh, without any disrespect to the system, I think we're failing miserably because we have an impossible task put before us. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it's a never ending. It's a never ending task, right? There's always, when you think of something, you think of the light at the end of the tunnel, there's no light. You're no, just, no. you're just in the there tunnel. Is no, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you're so right. Here. We, we do have to go back and look at what led you here. And we, we don't right? because there's not enough resources Uh, there's not even enough to say mental health issues, right? When, when we were in probably you as well, there wasn't a lot even for us, which now it brings me to a couple of things you said, like you were diagnosed with PTSD after you decided to get some help, you and your wife decided you needed help. And this season we're talking about reinventing yourself. So Mm -hmm. from from your retirement to now, how have you done that? Well, I'm sure if you talk to some of my friends, you probably say, they probably would say I haven't, but uh, (laughs) I've looked at things a little differently. Uh, Writing has become a major thing. My wife and I have traveled all over the world and we're heading off to Vienna in about three weeks. Wow. And after that, we're going to Paris. And if I could say to any correctional officer who is starting out would be save your money, live for today, save for tomorrow, but get those experiences out in the world and realize that it's not just one dimensional. And, and, and I also think we need to treat people with a lot more respect. Uh, uh, I, I know that when I was growing up being a little bit, uh, we'll say chubby, uh, people would call me all kinds of nasty names, or if your skin color was different, you got called that. And it just goes on and on and on. And the inmates pick up on this. So I got called a, a, a fat blank, just about every day of my employment. Um, and uh, there's a, just a lot of damage out there. And I just don't think we have the tools to do it. We try. And uh, um, I did some uh, 24 prison tours in my first book. I write about them. Most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. And that was I organized prison tours down the West Coast of the United States. And we went to to and uh, San Quentin three times. We went to Folsom. Oh, wow. 
uh, Walla Walla. And uh, we're walking in this sports field and I couldn't understand why they would give us two bottles of water at the beginning of our trek across the sports field, which was probably 10,000 miles long. Uh, it was the worst day of my life. And we're drinking all this water and uh, thinking we're going to die. And who do we see? We see Charles Manson and Sir Hanson. Oh, wow. And we got to see their cells. And, and uh, uh, Charles, Charlie wasn't very polite to us. He told us where to go. And, uh, but the experiences we, we've learned about from down in the U.S. compared to what we do up here. I mean, their prisons are three to 5,000 people in a, a prison. Ours are 500 tops. So uh, we don't uh, warehouse inmates. And, uh, and thankfully, we don't because it would be a lot worse. So, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Oh, well, thank you so much. I actually, hold on. I had a quick thought and I just want to know if maybe this changed how you from book number two to book number three, because you said you interviewed inmates for book number two, right? Mm -hmm. So did you tell their whole story? Like from like their life story? Well, the inmates that I did interview, I had to be very careful. Like there was a contract killer I interviewed and he asked me not to say his name. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I didn't. But the other stories, most of the inmates don't want to talk to you. So I always start with newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. And then I go to my own experience. And then I interview staff members. And then I put it together. And I gotcha. always verify uh, two or three people before I put something in writing. Um, but to backtrack a little bit, I was involved as a union rep on the handcuff issue. And we went to court. Mm -hmm. And we had to fight our employer 12 of us had to go to court and I learned how to cry on, uh, on, uh, so I was up there and I started to cry and, and, uh, afterwards it was a pretty good performance. Eh? Um, and, and the body armor, that was another one. I got disciplined, threatened with uh, discipline if I wore body armor. Uh, and there was an in incident at Matsqui prison a while back and the correctional, or not the correctional manager, the, the warden had made a comment that uh, we give our staff body armor. And I was so angry at that comment because they didn't give us anything. We had to take them to court. We had to threaten them. Um, and same thing with the handcuffs. It was all about image because if we had handcuffs, that would equate or translate to the public that, Oh, we have to handcuff inmates. They must be dangerous. Mm -hmm. So here we're trying to put this face forward that everything is rosy and great and rehabilitation is working. Well, it ain't. And mm -hmm. uh, handcuffs and body armor and guns just don't fit into the mix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my mm -hmm. speech. That's your speech. That's your speech about that. We appreciate all your speeches. Um, oh, awesome. It was super fun. Thank you for being here and sharing. We'll post uh, about the books. Can, we can get them anywhere or do, do you prefer us go to the website? Um, well, you know, I got rid of my website. I have a Facebook page now. Okay. Um, and you can buy the books on Amazon, on Kohl's. You can walk into any Kohl's store and go online. Uh, I decided to do a self-publish because uh, there was more freedom and there was mm -hmm. more money. Uh, Canadian authors don't historically make money. So I wanted to at least break even and uh, it paid for my Harley Davidson. So I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for you. Good Perfect. For you. Okay. Well, thanks we'll, again. we'll post the links. Yeah. Yes. And thank you again yeah. so you know, much. I really appreciate the time you've taken with me. I think what you do is valuable and it's thank always you. good to hear somebody else's perspective, somebody who's not necessarily crazy, 
Uh, I, you don't know. You don't know me. I'm being nice here, okay? <laughs> I know you are. Awesome. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at From Uniforms to Unicorns, uh, on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Speaker, all of those. Also, feel free to subscribe. You'll be notified of new episodes that come out, and we always love a review. Also, feel free to share with anybody you think would enjoy. We also want to send a big thank you to Jamie Green for being our podcast editor and to Jeff Bale at Third Hell Music for our soundtrack. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day. Love, Lauren and Sharon.